Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Battlefields Podcast, brought to you by The Epoch Times. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Retired Charles Fink, the director of the Battlefields Project and the owner of The Havoc Journal, where we pride ourselves on being the voice of the veteran community. This week, we are bringing you Profiles in Havoc, stories from the men and women serving our nation on the battlefield and the home front. Many thanks to The Epoch Times for their generous and enduring support of America's military and first responders, as well as to our other sponsors, including the Havoc Journal, the Second Mission Foundation, and Veterans Repertory Theater. And now, the host of the Battlefields Podcast and Profiles in Havoc, Christopher Paul Meyer. Is the United States losing faith in the military? That was supposed to be the subject this week, but my guests and I got really distracted, and we do touch on it, and we try to touch on it. A bunch, but we just kept getting distracted by other shiny objects that were around us. My guests this week were Coffee or Die executive editor Marty Scovlin Jr. and Havoc Journal owner Charlie Faint. And we had a lot of ground to cover having Marty on. So Marty, I felt I was glad he finally was on because I was feeling really weird that we had probably two-thirds of our episodes. Marty's name had come up, and I'd never met Marty. I knew who he was. But I'd never spoken to him, had no contact with him, and yet I was. Yet we were having these conversations about him or about things he'd done, and uh, it just felt weird and wrong. So it was about damn time that we got Marty on the podcast, and um, so we had a lot of ground to cover. Though we got into the full origin story of Havoc Journal and how Marty came up with it, which I thought was really interesting and will be really interesting to anyone that's a veteran and a writer. Um, or somebody interested in journalism, or for that matter, just as somebody that's considering taking a leap in life uh, with no safety net. Oh, that was super interesting. Um, Marty's doing a lot of great stuff at Coffee and Die, so we had to talk about that. He's also working on a book that I think is incredibly interesting. Um, Charlie, for his part, tried to convince us that closing down Fort Hood would not magically solve all of the Army's image issues which I'm still not entirely sure about. But uh, seriously, we, we ragged on Fort Hood a lot, um, which is probably pretty warranted. But um, for those of you that are not in the military, really interesting insight into Fort Hood, into the shenanigans that go on there. Um, you guys are going to like this episode. Really fun one. If you're thinking of letting your child join the military or if you're hoping that they don't, um, I think we're going to have a lot of stuff in here that you're going to like, relate to, find interesting, good food for thought. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc. So welcome to this episode of the Weekly Havoc, roundtable discussion of the week's events by the staff and writers at Havoc Journal. Marty Scovlin Jr. is the executive editor of Coffee or Die magazine. As a journalist, Marty's covered the Standing Rock protest in North Dakota. He's embedded with American Special Operations Forces in Afghanistan, which I just have to interrupt myself and say that's not really that big a deal since he was Special Operations Forces in Afghanistan, but whatever. He wanted to mention that, so he did also embed with them as a journalist. He's also broken stories about the first females to make it through infantry training and ranger selection. He's also published two books. He's appeared as a co-host on History Channel's JFK Declassified and has produced multiple award-winning independent films. He is also, not least importantly, the founder of Havoc Journal. So Marty, been a long time coming. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And I want to start an argument right off the bat here and say it is actually more difficult than you'd expect to embed with guys. When you're a former soft guy, <laughs> they don't care. It's so much easier for them to say no because it's like you're not from, you know, you're not like this bigwig journalist that they have to worry about offending and coming back to bite them. For me, it's just like, oh, he's just another Joe that picked up a pen after he got out. Like, easy to tell this guy no. So. so they don't they don't consider you a real journalist. Is that is that was that what you got? That they were just like, no, you're one of us. We could do what you do. That you're nothing special. Was that kind of the attitude that you got? Well, I feel like I've turned the page at this point. Um, I would hope because so. of some yeah. of those embeds and some of it. And certainly, that what I found out too is they they definitely 
absolutely judge you as a journalist first and whatever your background is is just like a cherry on top second so they absolutely were reviewing like my background what i'd previously written you know um come to find out the military very much views journalists as you're basically only as good as the last thing that you did so if the last thing you did was a piece of garbage that they felt was shoddy reporting or something like that they're going to be much less inclined to accommodate your uh, your embed request as uh, you know, as opposed to like, oh, this guy looks like the guy or gal looks like they do really great work. We can trust them to come out here and do you know have an unbiased take. Um, so, so what was the last thing you had done before you embedded? What was your showpiece that they went that they had enough confidence to run with you with? Uh, I want to say that for before my first Afghanistan embed, which was with Task and Purpose. It was kind of going off of the most recent thing. The most recent big thing that I did was the North Dakota Standing Rock protest. But I had also done some other just good reporting. Um, I think I did a story. I, I remember them bringing this up of I, I just recently, like two weeks before my embed, did a story on the SFAB and uh, mm. the Security Forces Assistance yeah. Brigade, right? Um, and that had apparently been received very well within, you know, whatever uh, – conference rooms mattered uh, for it to be received well in. And um, and so that went really well. And then like the second Afghanistan trip was purely off the strength of the first one. Whereas I felt like that first one was very much like, okay, we'll let him come out and do some stories on like the commando qualification course. It, you know, yeah. I, I think it was very much like, let's see what he does with this. And then if he doesn't like screw us over or something. Um, right. And that resulted in the second time I came back out and had way more access, you know, got out with an ODA. It was a much more significant um, experience, I think. I mean, both are that's, significant. That's awesome. I uh, I just realized that I don't think we've had a bio yet that is going to require me to link to so many different articles right off the bat yet. So that is by far the most uh, link-heavy bio that we've that we've thrown out yet but i will but we're gonna link to all of it i mean if i if i can i don't think it'll be hard for me to track down all that stuff i you know i can send you I'll, a few of the the better ones there, no, there's a no, few no. that there's nothing to write home about I, I don't need to see my wife and kid this weekend that's okay i'll sit there and just comb through it no, no, listen uh that's no that's awesome it's actually is interesting i mean that's a whole different topic that we can talk about maybe once i get through introductions but um about that transition to become a journalist because i think Certainly, you've been a huge um, front runner, uh, maybe even a leading indicator about uh, what vets can do as writers and the potential for them to kind of leapfrog from the military into a writing career. And I think the journalistic approach is an interesting one. And the I think the struggles and the, the triumphs and tribulations of doing that, I think, would be an interesting uh, – that's an interesting topic to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. If not today, if not today, <laughs> at, at some point. All right. In the meantime, um, maybe I should introduce Charlie as well. Um, of course, if this is not your first time listening to the show, you already know Charlie. But for those that don't, Charlie Faint is an active duty Army intelligence officer. He's the deputy director of the Modern War Institute at West Point. He has previous assignments throughout special operations, including JSOC, seven deployments, in addition to operational tours in Egypt, the Philippines, and Korea, three master's degrees. Are they all from Yale, Charlie? Are all your master's degrees from, from Yale? <laughs> no, I just, can never just, get past the, that just one. the last one. Just the last just one. The, this is the last one. That's a humble brag. Okay. Uh, three master's degrees all from Yale, or one from Yale. Currently a PhD candidate, executive director of Second Mission Foundation, and the owner of the Havoc Journal. Hi, Charlie. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me back. Hey, of course. Um, okay, so because we finally have Marty here, and we can actually talk to Marty and not just talk about Marty... Um, and, and to be clear, I've never met Marty before, so I, I've heard stuff about him and I've heard stories about him and all that. And then I just felt like it's, I, I just felt uncomfortable, like having any more Marty related discussions when I'm like, I don't even know this guy. I know of him. I've read his stuff before, but it just seemed awkward and uncomfortable to even bring it up. But so let me, I'm going to backtrack to our very first episode when Elisa Suderman started off telling us how she became hooked up with Havoc Journal. And she said she was discovered, Marty, by you at a biker bar in Denver. And that was essentially the extent of your executive vetting process to bring her on board. What else do you feel comfortable telling us about that interview process? Well, I didn't know it was a biker bar. Like, I'm not a biker. Like, uh, not... I, I would like, I just, I don't feel like I have the coordination to be a biker. I would love, I like the idea of being a biker. 
you know, but I just, I'm not one. I don't think I realized that it was in a biker bar. It just was, I think, one of the many haunts that Leo Jenkins and his merry band of Denver Rangers was, uh, you know, gallivanting around that night. And I think she was like a friend of a friend of somebody that was out there and we got to talking on things. And yeah, um, she's, I, you know, I think at that time I was fresh off of, you know, three years as a recruiter. I do think that I'm a fairly good um, judge of character on people. And some people you meet and you're just, you immediately know, uh, hey, they're a solid person or, you know, and then there's others where, you you know, you maybe you need more time to develop um, that relationship or whatever. And uh, she was just one of those people right off the bat where you could tell she's a very genuine person, very smart, uh, I felt like, you know, just I don't remember exactly what she talked about. I probably attribute that to trying to keep up with Leo. But, um, you know, I, I remember coming away from that being like, oh, wow, she would be an incredible addition to what we were trying to accomplish with, you know, at that time, Black Side Concepts, but Havoc Journal really specifically at that point. And um, I think, she, yeah, you look at what she's done, her trajectory since then, you know, it's, it's kind of like being, I don't know, the whoever the college scout was that discovered discovered michael jordan it's like dude that guy was going to get discovered either way you can't give too much credit to the talent scout you know elise is one of those rock stars that just she was going to make it in and and do great things in this community which she has done um and continues to do and yeah i was just maybe the first person that brought her into the fold i guess to, to be fair, I mean, her trajectory came to a screeching halt the moment she came on the podcast and um, and it's kind of flatlined and it's just leveled out. She's plateaued for right now. Yeah. So I don't know. Now that you're back on, hopefully it'll uh, she'll she'll continue to take off. I feel like I, we slowed her down and, uh, you know, had her on and what, twice, right, Charlie? Twice yeah, we've had her, we've right. had her on. We got to have her back on again. Uh get that engine kicked up, but yeah, especially with what she's doing, um, all the stuff she does with TBI and, and, and vet, vet stuff. It's, it's incredible. I didn't even level set this whole, I didn't preface this whole line of questioning though at all. Let's back up. How did you come up with Havoc Journal? Where did this come from? Tell us how you, how this even began. Yeah. The Genesis I think was, um, if we want to back up, I think the story of Havoc Journal starts with the story of Black Side Concepts. And the story of Black Side Concepts starts with me being halfway through a 12-pack uh, on my couch one night, deciding to write this thing that I later called The Ranger. And that was really my, um, uh, you know, when I look at my history with writing, the the writing was on the wall, so to speak, as far as like, I, I didn't know it, but I was, I think, bound to become a writer at some point. Um, but uh, I would say The Ranger, this little I don't even know what to call it, short story, poem, I, I don't know. Um, but it basically all it was was just me putting down on paper a kind of recurring memory that I'd had from my fourth deployment in Iraq. And um, and it did like, you know, ended up kind of making the rounds through the veteran community. And before I knew it, I and this is while I was still in my third year of recruiting, getting ready to make the transition back to what I would call like the regular army, you know, the non-recruiter world army. And um, was in full, you know, I had just taken the D-Lab, uh, you know, I was making the transition to be a um, 35 Papa cryptological uh, linguist. Oh, really? Yeah, you know, sure. That was kind of my goal. And, and you know, that was one of the a lot of the early conversations that Charlie and I had were around that world of transitioning to military intelligence, um, yeah. specific units that I wanted to go to. And um, and so that was the tr- you know, I didn't plan on getting out of the military after that three years. Of re- recruiting was just a break. And I'd actually met, you know, kind of where I was trying to to go, I, th- through Charlie, uh, at one of the Yale Global Affairs conferences that he, uh, invited me to, had met a, um, squadron commander for, uh, one of these places. And he actually mm-hmm. told me, he was like, oh, yeah, the fact that you were a ranger and now you've got this recruiting experience, it's sure. actually, you're ticking a lot of boxes for us. So I was very jazzed up about continuing my career in the, you know, rejoining the special operations community, but in a very different capacity. And, um, and then I write this thing called the Ranger and put it out. I got people asking me to like, hey, can you put that on a T-shirt or a poster or something? 
and you kind of figure, well, yeah, why not? You know, um, I think me and my wife were renovating our bathroom at that point. So I was like, ah, I could buy more drywall, maybe slightly better tile, you know, um, if, if I sold a couple t-shirts or something. And this was really okay. before I think like Ranger Up was like the only game in town. And I had no ambitions at that very early stage of trying to like compete with them. And this was before the genesis of like the larger, I think what a lot of people refer to as like the vet bro, you know, coffee, t-shirts, all you know, till Valhalla, you know, all this other stuff. We were kind of like one of the early people to enter that kind of rat race without really knowing it uh, at the time. And, and so, yeah, we printed up some, uh, some canvas prints with what I wrote on there and we put together some t-shirts and that sold really well. And it kind of felt like, Oh, maybe we should like, you know, slap a company name on this and, and, you know, and that first year did so well that it kind of felt like, man, maybe I should get out and see this through. I'm a recruiter. I know how to get back in if I need to. And, uh, <laughs> and so I get out and we start what was called black side concepts, just based off of, you know, when you are, uh, for those that don't know, if you're executing a raid, there's like white side, there's black side. Black side is kind of the, the security element. And uh, what really, if you're pulling black side, really all you're doing is just you're sitting there on a knee all night long while the other guys do cool stuff. And you just sit there and you think about like your grocery list and like every errand that you haven't run since you've been on. Deploy. Like you go, So it's like the concepts that you come up with on black side, it's all over the place because I didn't know what this was going to be. Right. So yeah. black side concepts, maybe it would at some point become black side media or something more specific. I had no idea what this was going to become. But so. Um, to move the story along here, I get out of the military. Wait, wait, and we're Marty, let me back up. Where did you publish the Ranger initially when you got it out and it got a buzz? I think that the that? first place it was was on shadowspear.com. Okay. Wow. And then shortly yeah. after that, I put it on Facebook. And um, wow. yeah, it, it kind of made wow. the rounds, you know. Um, wow. And uh, Sorry, I, I just want to get that out. But yeah, yeah. that's wow. That's amazing. And So you were you were viral. Yeah. I mean, yeah. for the vet community, yeah. For it's not community. like I was like yeah. the front page of online or whatever you know sure um or the hollywood reporter like yeah um but uh so we got out and started you know pursuing this business full-time moved out to colorado and i think it was right around that time that i talked to both leo jenkins and charlie about like coming in on this with me and making a real go at this and i think that one of those things that you figure out when you're professionally hawking t-shirts for a living uh is oh you need to like all the business books tell you like how to start a business 101 books or like start a blog and so we started this uh site called hit the woodline that originally had just one vertical like one um pot there that was satire but the satire articles were so successful that nobody knew it for anything besides <laughs> It's satire. And we had all these other serious essays and stuff. So Charlie and I, I think, really came together and were like, let's start a different publication that's strictly serious content or just non-satirical content. Hit the Woodline will stay as satirical. That'll just be our, you know, quote unquote, yeah. like duffel blog type presence. And then Havoc Journal will be our essays, our, you know, all the other stuff that we want to do. And so that's kind of how Havoc Journal was launched. And I don't remember how we landed on the name. Uh, I I know that there was a reason that we landed on that, but I don't remember what it was right now. What did you um, think of Charlie's ex post facto uh, acronymization of Havoc? Do you, do you, do you want to put that into legend and say that's exactly what you guys were thinking when you first came up with the name Havoc? No, that was totally a Charlie thing. That was totally a Charlie thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But anybody who knows Charlie is like, yeah, that's totally a Charlie thing. Like that's, <laughs> Like, yeah, of course he would turn that into an acronym, um, which is fine. And it works like I it, it give it gives a deeper, you know, uh, a, a deeper sense behind it, you know, b besides because I guarantee the acronym he came up with was much more well thought out than however I landed on freaking havoc with a K, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what, what, I mean, the thing that stands out to me most about this, that's a hell of a shot that you took. I mean, you had a piece that certainly got out there and, you know, went, went viral in the community, but that was enough for you to go. I mean, I, I, th I think it's might be hard for people not in the military or people who never served to understand exactly how much sunk, how many sunken costs you had in the military besides your time in Ranger Bat and your time as a recruiter. But to have um, the fact that you've taken the D-Lab, uh, the Defense Language Aptitude Battery, and, um, and you're potentially en route to the defense language Institute to learn a yep. language and become, um, a, uh, 35 Papa, which, uh, people may know as special operations team, alpha side, a member. And a lot of times 
um, become the um, cryptological uh, uh, collector for um, ODAs for special forces teams. That's stuff that in the community, that means a lot. That's that's real sunken cost. That's real time in to kind of turn away from that uh, when that had everything you uh, a soldier would need to not just make a career, but make a really good, interesting career with a lot of second career possibilities when you get out. Um, that's a that's a hell of a thing to have to have gambled and, and had that gamble pay off. Yeah, but you don't think about it at the time. You think about like where the, my mindset was at that time where I didn't have kids yet. And everything that I'd done so far was just like, well, let's see how it turns out. You know, for everything from mm-hmm. like the fir- I don't like jumping out of airplanes. You know what my approach was the first time I had to jump? Well, everybody else is doing it. I might as well. If I die, I die. You know, same thing with combat deployment. Same thing. Every risky thing that I think I'd done up to that point was very much a like, well, we'll see how it shakes out, you know, and just lean into it like Leroy Jenkins, you know, like yeah. just, you know. And so this was just kind of like. I think my wife and I deliberated on it for like a day. Uh, Same thing when we did like, you know, later on the van trip and stuff. Like, I don't think I've made any of all the life altering decisions I have made. um, And at least in my adult life and probably for the majority of my like uh, post pubescent like existence is there hasn't been a lot of thought that has gone into it. Like it's almost like kind of like that judgment of like, this either is a good idea or it isn't. I'm not going to sit here and wrap myself around an axle trying to think of every in and out. It's either like, am I going to put my mind toward this or am I not? And I do, you know, my mom told me I could do anything I put my mind to. So I, you know, it's kind of like once I decide I'm going to put my mind to something, well then of course I'm going to do that thing. You know, like there was never any doubt in my mind that I would, do any of the different things that I've done because it was like, well, if I'm going to put my mind to it, obviously it's going to happen. You know, did you ever have any regrets? Did you, did you ever, or second thoughts or, or were you completely like, you know, 180? I've gear shifted. I'm in a different headspace now. I don't even, I've never thought about it. Never had second thoughts. Well, never I think yes back. to both. Like there was absolutely a 180 gear shift of like, okay, again, if I'm going to put my mind to this, I need to invest everything that I have into it as far as like, um, not monetarily, but like, uh, I had none of that to invest. Um, but, uh, b- but like, you know, effort and, and mindset and, and all of that. And sure. You're sweating. Um, yeah. But, uh, a hundred percent there were, man, there was, you know, I think Charlie will tell you, like, none of us were making the millions off of black side concepts or anything like that. And, um, I, you know, I was, that was my only source of, uh, income. So there was some dark days where, uh, I went through where it was like, man, um, we need to, you know, I, I, I could be on the beach in Monterey right now learning French or some shit, like completely living life, probably like, again, coming from Ranger Battalion stuff, like I probably would have been kicking ass, you know, yeah. I, I, I absolutely, it, it, it was not lost on me that I had traded in a very straightforward path that I could have been very successful at for this like path of who knows if I'm going to be able to pay my rent this month. Uh, there was at one point right. where we were literally moving our car around to different parts of our apartment parking lot so that the repo truck couldn't find it. Um, yeah. Just yeah. to try to keep things afloat and keep things moving. And that yeah. put incredible stress on us. And it just, yeah. Th- yeah. To, so to say that, like, did I think about, you know, did I make the right decision? Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. I did. That was something I thought about a lot of the time. And, um, you know, and you, in retrospect, you liken it to just like the dark hours at Cole Range or something like that, where mm-hmm. it's like, you know, yeah, if, when the the times when you most want to quit are probably the times that that should be a sign that you're doing something right and you shouldn't quit. Um, did you yeah. ever? Did you ever have um, any thoughts? I mean, obviously, the financial stress that that's uh, of, of course that's going to be your 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 number one, uh, you know, concern. But what about? Um, just not being in the military anymore. The fact that like, you know, the, the thing that has almost become cliche now to say when people get out, when they separate, especially before their 20 years and say, well, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm casting about, I need that, you know, Charlie's got second mission foundation, you know, what's my second mission? What am I going to do? And, and is it going to have that sense of worth that the military had? Now, obviously you knew what you wanted to do, but did you ever have thoughts? Was was there ever something about, hey, I'm no longer in the military. I'm no longer doing that mission. I'm no longer that guy. I don't know, walking in uniform through the airport where people thank me for my service. Was there ever anything like that where it was like, I, I don't want to say the ego boost of being in the military, but the um, 
just the the emotional or patriotic or any any kind of emotional attachment to it where where you missed that as well or was it really just a, a dollars and cents like risk versus reward kind of trade-off uh yeah i think it was very much the latter so i went through a little bit of that when i first became a recruiter because that felt like a halfway house like mm, yeah. being a recruiter is not really in the military you know sorry recruiters like uh it's true um yeah. it, it's you very much it's you and a couple other people maybe um out in a town somewhere in America, you know, being, um, a salesman, you know, or saleswoman. And, um, so for, for me, there was definitely like the first year of that, there was some hard feelings there, especially, um, a bunch of people that I knew died, uh, uh people that I knew in battalion died, like within six months of me going over, like the first deploy, I did five deployments while I was in first ranger battalion. The first one I didn't go on because I was now a recruiter was the one that we had the most people in our company die the entire GWAT. So, um, all guys that like, one of them was my senior private. Another one is a guy that I'd known since we went through rip together and, and all the way up through like WLC and, and everything. And, and so there was absolutely some thoughts there of like, Hey, I'm out here like hawking brochures to snot nose yeah. 17 year olds. Like, yeah. meanwhile, the boys are over getting it done, you know? Um, so, so there was a little bit of that then, um, I think by the time, but as far as like any sort of like public adulation or anything like that, it was like, man, I was coming off of three years of recruiting duty yeah. where by the end of that, I was literally not wearing my uniform to work. Yeah. I, yeah. and especially when you come, that's like a hard transition to make when you come from like the special operations community where you're literally don't wear your uniform, like off base, like you change into civilian clothes to go home. Like it's. And then now you're like, like, I remember, I so vividly remember my first day on recruiting duty and stopping into a Dunkin' Donuts in Auburn, New York and feeling so like fucking gross. Exposed. Like, oh, oh, no, like, gross. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was just like, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm doing something wrong here. Like I'm wearing my uniform in public. Like it, it felt so weird, you know? Um, and for anybody yeah. that like comes from like the, you know, big army or rest of the military, that's like not a big deal. Right. But like right, coming from right. Ranger Battalion, it was like very much like a, like weird feeling you know yeah um, yeah no that makes so. that makes total sense i i mean we could do this whole hour on that alone i think there's and 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 i, I think there's actually a lot of applicability to probably people listening um and i just think it's an interesting story and and has a lot of um yeah a lot of lessons that people can learn from i think though it also especially the, your time in recruiting dovetails with what i wanted our topic to be today which is the is the us losing faith in the military and um, Charlie, I promise uh, I'm, I'm, you'll you'll be allowed to talk at some point. I, I swear to God. Um, but it, I, I just wanted to set the stage a little bit. Um, obviously, we had the greatest generation. We Vietnam had there was obviously a lot of stigma for the military uh, coming after Vietnam, but we've progressed now to the point where I think the fashionable term is we're often considered secular saints. That it's like oh, you're in the military. There's you know you're just somebody that most people don't have much connection to. And when they see you, they've heard about things, they've seen movies. Uh, so they assume that you're an avatar for all of that. And there's that, that faint halo around your head in the eye of much of the public. However, um, I think it was a day or so ago, Charlie can probably sanity check me on that. The Reagan foundation had commissioned a, uh, a poll and it found that the popularity or the, the, uh, U.S. public opinion about the military had dropped from about 70% to about 54% since 2018 alone, which obviously raises a lot of questions. But Marty, I want to stay with you just for one second because I want to dovetail this with your your time in recruiting and what you saw as a recruiter and the way that people approached you and parents considered military service. Um, obviously, this was way before this poll was commissioned, but what did you see? What was your takeaway from those dizzying heights of U.S. public opinion about the military? How did that dovetail with your experience as a recruiter? Were people willing to go beyond just giving you a thumbs up and thank you for your service and actually have their kids enlist or say, hey, yeah, there's, I think there's a lot of good possibilities for you there? Or did you find something else? Yeah, it's uh, definitely um, the sentiment is definitely I support the troops until I have to put some of my own skin in the game. Um, that is the overwhelming sentiment that I saw um, and I think continue to see. Um, certainly there's exceptions. There were plenty of parents that I dealt with that were very excited that their son or daughter was joining the military, um, but they were very much in the minority, like sub 2% of interactions. Um, 
most people are very happy to say they support the troops or their uncle was in Vietnam or their grandpa was in, uh, you know, invaded the beaches of Normandy. And as soon as the subject comes up of them, you know, or their family member doing something, it's people get real skittish. Um, So it's I think that there's a lot of hypocrisy. And and I mean, I can I can argue maybe a more. I don't want to say noble, but a more understandable take, which is maybe that's also why they are so grateful because they're like, man, I don't want my kids doing that. So thank you for doing that because I feel like it relieves my offspring from that responsibility. Is that a more charitable way of putting it or would you you have a more cynical take on it? Certainly it's more charitable, but that doesn't make it not (laughs) bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Sure. (laughs) I mean, uh, listen, and I think – so then just to follow up on that, then what do you think about that sense of, let's call it entitlement for, I mean, you, you when you're in the military, you're a however many times uh, volunteer. You volunteer to join. Maybe you volunteered to go airborne. You volunteered to go into special operations. You volunteered to go. You're, you're a multiple time volunteer when you're in the military at this point. So when you get out or even before you get out, there, I think, is sometimes maybe an earned sense of entitlement where it's like, yeah, motherfuckers, I was out here doing all this stuff while you guys were dealing with first world problems like, you know, uh, I, I don't know who was going to win on The Voice this yeah. year, you know, and it's just and, and so you there's a, a, a bit of a sense of um, let's call it derision that I think yeah. the vets can have. Uh, is that warranted? Is that not warranted? No. Or is that what it's, do you think? It's What's just as bad as the person that gets snarky with you about their kid joining the military. The the vet who thinks that they're entitled because they went and did something that there's ulti- like, yeah, man, it's your country too. Like, congrats, you did your part. You know, um, it's you know, you be proud of your service certainly, but having like this derisive attitude towards people who didn't serve is no. That's that's I think very gross. Um, and on the same, it's not whether people served or didn't serve. I think it's the attitude that people approach. Uh, What I got frustrated with was these parents, uh, or, or people in general that had this holier than thou of in the same way that veterans have that, like, how dare you type attitude in some instances, or, or don't you know what I did sort of thing. Mm -hmm. The same sort of attitude, but just the opposite end of the spectrum is there for a lot of Americans of like, oh, yeah, I'm happy to be nice to your face and and say I support the troops or whatever. Um, but I have this very like you are gutter scum if you served in the military. Like my kids are better than that. It's you didn't have opportunities growing up if you served in the military or you didn't yeah. you know, you must have came from a bad neighborhood or something like that. It's uh, it, it's it's that attitude is just as disgusting as the vet who gets out and looks down on others that didn't serve as, and thinks that they're holier than thou. Both of them are egotistical and not founded in, I think, humility or um, the truth of what service should be about. So Charlie is someone that has more time in than Marty or I, and therefore can look down his nose at us, uh, you know, nonstop. What do you think? What's your your take? Um, I mean, uh, so obviously with this poll, um, you and I both talked about it uh, beforehand. I mean, what what do you think? What's your take? Why why are people losing faith in the military? So it's it's a very interesting situation. So the last time I taught here at West Point, one of the classes I, I, I was asked to teach was American politics. And this was during the run-up to uh, President Trump being being elected. And one of the things we talked about was trust in institutions. And to see this very steady erosion of trust, a, a very big erosion of trust, which is in the military, as all, all three of us know, the trust is the, is the bedrock foundation of our profession. For the American people to be losing trust in us is very concerning to me. And there's any number of reasons why it's it's occurring. And in fact, we're just assuming that this poll is accurate. I think Reagan foundation is a credible organization, but we don't know. We don't know for sure that this poll is even accurate, but I believe it probably is. And let me me interrupt you for one second, Charlie. I actually saw a 2020 Gallup poll today that said 72% surveyed still indicate they have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the military. Good. So maybe it's an outlier. It might not be good. I I hope that's the case because they're just like the article that we published just today on Havoc Journal. uh, I I think that 
veterans take for granted the goodwill of the American people. And I think if we talk to any Vietnam vets, we can see the, the opposite extreme of, of thank you for your service in the way that the veteran, the, the veterans for that era were treated. And also in the article I wrote today, it's, it's a very short distance to go from defund the, the police to dismantle the military. And we see how the, the police and first responders are being treated today. That could be us. So I think that we need to jealously guard our reputation and be kind and visible to the American people and not say things to them like, don't thank me for my service. I think when, when regardless of their motivations, if someone's trying to be nice to you, you should, you should try to be nice back. And I'm worried about the dis- dysfunctional veteran culture. And it goes to some, th- some things that Marty was saying right now, the sense of entitlement and the, the, I'm better for you. I'm better than you because I served. I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to serve. I've been in the army 26 years and I hope the army lets me stick around for a couple more, but I don't think I'm better than anybody for it. There's nothing more I'd rather have done. I'm very proud of it. I take a lot of pride in, in being a soldier, but I, I don't think anyone else should feel less of themselves because, because they didn't serve. There are many ways to serve. The three of us chose one way and, and many other folks can, can do it some, some way else. So what's the what's the dividing line between military exceptionalism, like the exceptionalism it takes for someone to volunteer and to go through what one goes through in the military, and uh, arrogance? Where where mm. do we draw that line? Where, where should that line be drawn? Uh, because it seems like to Mar- Marty, to your point, as a recruiter, I mean, you want kids to see the potential benefits, life changing benefits you can get in the military. But you don't want him to be an asshole about it either. So yeah. how do you how do you straddle well, that line? And well, I think as as far as it pertains to the public's perception of us, you know, I think that there's a lot of work to be done on. Yeah, I mean, Charlie, you bring up defund the police. There was a lot of things that happened that made people question the utility of the police. There's been a lot of things happening with the military right now yeah. where the public, rightfully so, is asking, "What the hell is going on inside the Department of Defense?" Where am I sending my son or daughter to? If I'm if I'm from the hometown of Vanessa Guillen right now, I don't know that I'm going to be super excited that about my right. kid joining the army. You know, after uh, I hit, and not knowing yeah, that larger context, yeah. we have a lot of think, and I think that a lot of these problems aren't new. I just think that we live in the information era now, where the greatest generation was the greatest generation because there was a very good propaganda machine right there, and there was a lot of sure. things. I'm not taking anything away from the bravery of the people that fought in World War II, but a lot of the bad stuff that happens in war, a lot of the stuff that happened when they got home was whitewashed. Um, whereas for us, when we come home now and the wars that we fight, there's a helmet cam on damn near every person. There's uh, you know, local news is national news. I mean, there is nothing swept under the rug. If you fuck up, it will be a hundred percent broadcast to the world. And right now, we got to reckon with that. And the, I think the military leaders, the leadership of the military, has to say, we got to figure out a way to get in front of this stuff and and show that one, we care about addressing these problems, and and that they're not, you know, the next guy's problem, which is I think a lot of what happened at Fort Hood. Um, but that you know we care about these problems and that we're a trusted institution that mom and dad you should trust your son or daughter to come into our ranks you know okay so here's my provocative question of the day how many of the army's problems could disappear if we just closed fort hood uh, you know, <laughs> I, like I say, because I mean, I mean, Fort honestly, Hood's a pretty big problem. So I mean. <laughs> every every year or two, it's something else at Fort Hood. It just never stops. There's, Colleen, Texas, is is just. I, I remember the. I fortunately didn't have to spend much time there, but I remember when I, I went there and I was staying at like a Holiday Inn or something off off post, and uh, somebody at the front desk, I think, said to me like with pride, "Hey, you know, we have the highest STD rate per capita in the country." I was like, who says that when you check into a hotel there? And I thought, well, that's indic- that's an indicator that well, <laughs> maybe why Fort Hood has some some problems. You know? Here's my provocative comment of the day. Fort Hood is the U.S. Army's version of Harvey Weinstein, uh, meaning it has been an open secret that everybody has movies. known about, that it uh-huh. was messed up and that there was messed yes. up stuff happening there. Everybody knew about it. Nobody did anything about it. And I think when people got stationed there, it was just like, man, I'm going to – do my time here and get the hell out before. And hopefully the musical chairs doesn't land on me. And there is a couple of people about 22, I think, right? 21 or 22 yeah. musical chairs landed on them. Um, so, 
let's speculate. Why is that? Because probably people are asking, So, especially if you haven't served, you're like, what the hell is going on at Fort Hood? Why is Fort Hood such a hub of, of chaos? Why do we think? What do you think? What do you think is special about Fort Hood? Similar to, um, and I'm happy to talk more here, Charlie, in light of what you probably can or can't, you know, I don't want to assume for you, but um, I think Fort Hood, like many places that we see across the military that have culture, a lot of things starts with culture and the culture that the leadership puts out and that filters down all the way through the ranks. What What is put up with, what is not put up with. We saw that, you know. There was a lot of issues that came out of the SEAL community recently that came to light, Mm -hmm. right? And a lot of it got traced directly back to unit culture. We look at the places in the military where things are going really right. Um, A lot of times it's because of unit culture that things are going really right. So I think culture and uh, basically just bad leaders or good leaders and what they put up with or don't put up with has a lot to do with why a place like Fort Hood can become toxic for so long. So, I, Charlie, we can table this uh, for the next two years until you can get out and, and <laughs> unleash the full fury of your opinions on us. But I, I, I agree. I mean, certainly what we've seen with the SEALs in certain uh, SEAL units recently and then like you know, a couple of years ago at 7th Group, there was a lot of stuff um, going on. And, and I can see, obviously, you can look at leadership and, and see what that does to the unit. What strikes me about Fort Hood as being so curious is that it seems like it's the base, irrespective of unity, irrespective of the garrison commander. It, uh, it, it's it's so huge and and out of, it always seems out of control, um, and not pertaining to any one particular unit, but just globally on that base. It seems well, like things are always when, a couple sandwiches. When you have chaos. literal gang activity on a military installation, when you have sex rings, when you have sex trafficking, drug trafficking happening by active duty service members on a base and nothing like Vanessa Guillen was murdered and chopped up. And then she wasn't even the only person that got murdered that month. (laughs) You know, like it's kind of like when you talk, those aren't things that are unique to one unit. That really is like the base as a community Yeah, is like when there are gangs on a base, when there is this sort of thing happening on a base, there are things going on as a community, as a base that are not specific to one unit. I don't think certainly there's probably some units on that post that are better than others. I think probably maybe some that it's just like, man, how do, why does our units squared away? Why do we got to be lumped in with the rest of Fort Hood? I'm sure there's units there that are like that, right? Where they've got squared away leadership and, you know, but you know, it's kind of like one of those things where, you know, you're only uh, um, as good as your weakest link. Right. And that could be applied to the units on Fort Hood. That could be applied to Fort Hood as far as the Army writ large. That can be applied to the military writ large. Right. So I I, the, I keep cracking up here because I, I have a visual in my head of the moms or dads that we were talking about just a couple minutes ago who are like, oh, my, my, my kid's a good kid. They can't go in the military. Oh, they don't deserve to go in the military. Only people know if they just go in the military. They're all sitting there listening to this going, see, this is why I didn't want my kid to go to the military. Exactly what you guys are saying. And obviously, Fort Hood, it, we're talking about it because it is the exception, uh, at least reputationally. It's, it's not the standard, but it is a... Um, but anyway, that was making me laugh because I was like, oh, they're sitting there going, yeah, you smug assholves. This is well, why we're not sending our kids to the military. It is a complex topic, right? Like we still need to field and 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 man a uh, an armed force that can defend our nation, right? Like we need to do that as a nation. We need that. Um, also, on the flip side of that, we need that armed force to earn the trust and respect of its um, – I don't know, constituency for lack of a better term there, you know, or not constituency, mm-hmm. but like, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the population that it draws its members from. Um, there's got to be yeah. some back and forth there. And I think there's something I, I heard this said in a different context and I'm going to steal it and I can't remember who said it. Um, so somebody listening can shoot us an email or, or leave it in feedback on iTunes for us. But Somebody said the the best friends I've ever had and the worst enemies I've ever had were all in the military while doing my time in the military. And I feel like I, I can relate to that where there's a couple of people that if I saw them today, I'd have a very hard time not just flattening them and a bunch of guys that, you know, I just have the biggest heart in the world for because um, just great dudes. And I feel like that's the military because it's the profession of arms. There's going to be stupidity. There's going to be violence. There's going to be chaos. There's also going to be honor and nobility. And it's the whole, it's the full spectrum of human emotions, 
in a um, in a life or death business. So that's going to up the stakes on everything. And you're going to find, and I, I'm saying this kind of because, again, that, that parent that doesn't want their kid to enlist is kind of in my mind. And I, I'm a big proponent of trying to talk to parents if they're thinking about their kid or thinking about what they could do and saying, hey, the military is an option, but also not sugarcoating it. Look, you're going to meet some of the biggest assholes in your life in the military. You're also, but you know, what's that old cliche saying? The the Chinese symbol for crisis is the same symbol for opportunity, which might be apocryphal. I don't know how true that is, but I think there's something to that as all as well. You might meet big assholes, but that's also great opportunities to really learn how to deal with assholes and to triumph in that and to to find some way some way of working around in ways that people on the civilian side might not be pushed to find as quickly or as dramatically. Charlie, what do you think? Am I making sense or am I talking out of my ass? So a lot of very interesting things to unpack there. And I'm thinking about the Fort Hood situation. And like Marty said, it it's always comes down to leadership. But there's some, some things that are kind of unique to Fort Hood. I think it's the largest base we have geographically. And I think in terms of personnel, I think Fort Bragg might be bigger. I'm not yep. 100%. Biggest geographically second population to Bragg. Right. Yep. And what they've got there, they got two conventional infantry divisions, 1st Cav and 4th ID, and they also got 10th SF Group. So you've got a, a lot of really young soldiers there. 10th and is in not, Colorado. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah, they that's have, a completely conventional no, base. Yeah, it's you're completely right. conventional Fort, base. Yeah. yeah, you're right. You're right. I don't know why I confused them with Fort Carson. Thanks, guys. Okay. So you got a conventional army base that that's huge with troops that are close to the Mexican border with all the that entails and many of them are under supervised and you're going to get situations like this and you, we always talk about things are going to going to uh, going to be bad until someone gets killed and unfortunately it took someone getting killed in a terrible way with Vanessa's situation. I, I feel terrible about the way that worked out to get the attention that it deserved. But I hope that we learn the right lessons for this. And I hope the 22 people that got axed over this were the right ones. Mm-hmm. Because Chris, yeah. you asked what would happen if Fort Hood went away, all those problems would just go somewhere else. So those are the kind of problems we've got to get get after. And we've got, we've got a bunch of great leaders in the, in the army and the three of us have experienced them, but we also have some toxic leaders and something I've experienced personally very recently, in fact. Um, and the army doesn't do a good job of identifying and getting them out. It, it's, it's sad sometimes. I think we do a good job overall, which is one of the reasons I'm still in. But a lot of these leaders manage to creep up through the ranks and uh, officer and enlisted side, and it's detrimental to the overall force. So in the long run, I hope that we can get after some of these issues to start mending the trust internally with the soldiers and and then with the with the American people. I'm, I'm, we're, of course, we're both off topic and almost out of time, which is completely <laughs> on brand for us. So, but I, uh, but I'd, I'd feel remiss if I didn't throw out one last question on this. Marty, uh, and then I'll come back to you, Charlie. One fix, one fix. If you were Pope tomorrow, one fix you could do to try to get rid of toxic leadership or affect toxic leadership in the army. What comes to mind? What would be one thing you you would put out? I hate to be the arrogant ranger here that thinks that the rangers' solutions are the solutions for everybody, but I think that if if there was RFS authority, uh, like there is in the ranger regiment for across the force, there certainly needs to be some sort of checks and balances there because even in the Ranger Regiment, there's guys that that uh, that responsibility is abused sometimes, I think, even within the Ranger Regiment. But across the board, um, I think that there needs to be the ability to get rid of people very quickly without judicial action, without giving, hey, you get an honorable discharge because you didn't do anything criminal, you didn't do anything, but you're not good for the force, you're fired. You know, I think we need to be able to fire people from the military not shuffle them around to a, a different staff spot or something like that or a different platoon or a different company. Maybe that's a interim step of, hey, maybe they're just not right for this unit. We need to try them on in a different place once. I think you get that shot once, but then there needs to be some sort of very quick way to get rid of people, and it can't just apply to the lower enlisted because a lot of these problems right now, it's very easy to get rid of lower enlisted, yeah. right? Yeah. It's a lot harder to get rid of that 15-year, uh, you know, you know, latter part of their career officer senior enlisted 
um, that are very ingratiated in whatever good old boys club there might be in their neck of the military, right? They're, they're, those exist everywhere. Um, and that's not specific to the military, but we need to have some way of saying like, this person's not good for the force. We need to get rid of them, not shuffle them, but get rid of them. Um, and, uh, I think that's one thing that the range regiment does very well. I think that's one place where you see like, not that the range regiment is perfect by any stretch, but they don't have a lot of the problems that we're talking about right now, yeah. even with across the board and special operations. Yeah. Um, so that's where I just say, like, I think that if there was, if I don't think that, and to be clear, I don't think that this problem is a one solution fix. But if you're going to pin me down on, if there's one thing that sure. could maybe make the biggest difference, it's, hey, the, you know, give the entire military RFS authority. Yeah. When we do a two hour show, then we'll have room for two points, two bullet points on it. But yeah. Um, Charlie, what do you think? So I think one of the things that one of the major strengths of the military is it being a meritocracy. And I think anything that erodes a true meritocracy inside the military opens the opportunity for bad leaders of all ranks to ascend to places they otherwise would not have gone. So I think if the army can can try to make it as much possible a true meritocracy without considerations for things that that aren't merit-based. I think we'll see some changes in that in the future. And also holding people accountable. It's it's you see a lot of failing up in the military. It's like this yeah. person they didn't, they didn't get fired. They got taken out of the job, but now they're doing an even more important job. And people that don't know that person look at their record and say, "Wow, this person's amazing." without the backstory of how they got there in the first place. So I think if we hold people accountable and maintain a meritocracy, we'll see some improvements, Chris. Cool. Marty, tell us about coffee or die. What's the latest and greatest over there? Uh, we're doing some cool stuff. Um, you know, we're this summer will be three years old for us. Um, very grateful for the opportunity that black rifle coffee has given me to kind of stand up, uh, you know, another publication and, see where I can take it. And, um, right now we've got a lot of really good people aboard. We've really expanded the team in the past year. And, um, just in this, uh, past week alone, we had one person out on the front lines between Ukraine and Russia reporting from one of the border towns. Um, there as artillery was actively being lobbed back and forth. Um, and then, you know, we had a team down in camp Pendleton, uh, reporting on the, um, uh, new Marine, uh, infantry course that they're putting all their infantry people through um I, the acronym escapes me right now but um reporting on that as well as uh, the recon challenge that they put on every year down there so we had those people spread apart and you know um we've really tried to do uh, a good job of getting people out on the ground at a, a lot of different places whether it's civil unrest in the united states or military bases both domestic and foreign war zones whatever it may be we've really tried to get people out to kind of beat the streets and do just like good old-fashioned reporting you know and um yeah, so it's, uh, you know, I don't think, th- I think that any well-balanced consumer of news gets their news from a lot of different places, but I think uh, my pitch is put us on your list, you know, yeah. put us on your read list. Yeah, I, I've, I've always considered coffee or die kind of, I don't know if, I'm trying to think if this would offend you or be a compliment <laughs> or how you would interpret this, but I'm just going to say, I've always considered them kind of Vice Magazine for people with a bit more skin in the game um, that you cover a wide range of issues, but it's also, but the military stuff, the the background, the perspective I, I think is there and it seems to be a bit more substantive for my taste. Um, how does that rub you? Uh, yeah. I mean, that was kind of how I originally pitched it was like vice for the military. So yeah. okay. Well, uh, shit. Yeah. All right. There you I, go. All right. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think that way it's it's definitely morphed over the past couple of years. So I don't know, and and so has Vice. To be completely honest with you, sure. where I don't Vice of 2014 is not Vice of 2021, and yeah. I think what yeah. we're doing is a little bit more Vice 2014. Um, you know, we're not uh, doing any videos on recommendations of testing different sex toys, for example, <laughs> which is one of their regular beats at Vice somehow. But coming soon, uh, right? Coming soon. <laughs> I don't know that it is giving us something soon. to look forward to. Okay, yeah. Right, I, okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that, yeah, like, but in that vein of like old school vice, it's like, yeah, we're putting people out on the ground doing reporting, going into some dicey situations sometimes. And yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. You know, it's, and That's I think really we bring, cool. you know, I, I think we bring a different thing to the comp. Whoops. Sorry. Hit the microphone. Uh, I think we bring a different thing to the, uh, conversation as far as like the overall military veteran media landscape, as far as, 
you know, Havoc Journal has their defined niche. We have our defined niche. Task and Purpose has their defined niche. Like there's uh, a lot of different folks in the game right now. And I think everybody's kind of carved out their 10 acres. And it's, it's kind of cool to see the ecosystem right now. Do you think it's going to populate more? Do you think that we're going to keep getting more and more vets coming out and getting, let's call it literary in the near future? You think that's how it's yeah. trending? I think that they always will. It's, you know, as yeah. far back as, you know, the Revolutionary War, veterans, you know, people, veterans of our wars have come back and written about their experiences, become storytellers of their generation, you know, whether that yeah. was, you know, certainly the early 20th century was a hotbed of people that we all know as authors or storytellers first, veterans second. Um, but they were, you know, they fought in their wars and, and everything. And I think that this, I think the access, you know, before you had to kind of get permission from somebody to put your thoughts out into the world, right? A newspaper yeah. or a magazine or a publisher had to take you on. Whereas now it's, there's nothing stopping anybody, which is, as we all see, kind of like a both good and terrifying thing right. that there's right. no filter right. there. But um, yeah, it's a double edged yeah. sword. Sure. Yeah, I think that there's going to continue to be people that come out of the military population, the warfighter population, um, and you know, start putting pen to paper, start becoming storytellers, reporters, journalists, poets, um, filmmakers, uh, whatever it may be. And I think that they have been and will continue to be a very important voice, um, uh, both within our like kind of closed demographic here as well as the larger media landscape. And uh, I think that's great. We should want that. And I think the best will continue to kind of like rise to the top and and the people sure. that are just ranting on Facebook uh, in the comments section that are a pain in all of our sides, they'll continue to just kind of live in the comments section, I think. Sure. Not to not to relate our warfighters to uh, uh, Che Guevara's terrorist groups, but I remember that, that was the famous comment about them when they're not fighting, they're writing. And there is something I think about conflict and people that deal in in life or death conflicts and, and needing to write and wanting to write, wanting to express themselves in some way, which leads me to tell us about the book with Shannon Cantor. What can you tell us about that book? God, um, the better question is what can everybody that knew Shannon can't tell me to put in the book? Because <laughs> man, half the lady's life was classified, like continues to be very secretive. Um, you know, a lot of the things that she was working on, uh, when she was killed in Syria in 2019, uh, are still being worked on now. Um, so it's not like you're writing about this figure that lived 10, 20, 30, 40, whatever years in the yeah. past. It's like, it's it's been a challenge. But um, for people that know, um, Shannon Kent, um, uh, Senior Chief Petty Officer Shannon Kent was a cryptologist in the uh, Navy, um, basically started off her career right off the bat coming out of DLI and uh, her cryptology training as a augmentee to JSOC. Um, as probably Charlie can tell you, that's the dirty secret of JSOC. It's all augmentees. Um, and so uh, she started there and then went through, um, at that time, the brand new direct support course for the SEAL teams, which she was maybe not the first female to do it, but maybe the second. Um, she was in the first class that females graduated from, at least. And um, so she was attached to a lot of the East Coast Base SEAL teams, or not attached, but she was assigned to the East Coast Base SEAL teams as a military intelligence professional. Did a lot of really hairy stuff. Again, found herself back working for the task force, working for, you know, uh, with the Mohawk program and things like that, which I never thought I'd be able to say that out loud, but it's pretty much out there at this point. You know, um, doing some really hairy things. And then at a certain point in her career, um, made the transition to a, uh, you know, special missions unit and um, went up there and continued to do some just absolutely mind-blowing things to the point where, you know, when I went to her memorial service while I was writing the article about her, um, I had people there. It was like a who's who of the tier one special operations community. Mm -hmm. um, and you've got guys who uh, I knew by reputation, like yeah. as like, these are some bad dudes. Um who were talking about Shannon with the utmost reverence as far as, and not in the way of like everybody talks good about the dead people sort of right. way, but like, right. no, we literally lost a asset to our nation when she died. Like she was an asset, not to our unit, but our nation with what she brought to the table. Um, oh, by the way, cancer survivor knocked out a bachelor's degree and a master's degree while serving in these tier one units while being pregnant, ran a marathon while like seven months pregnant. Um, like, all, like I can't even go through the full list right now. It, it's, it's crazy. Um, 
So where did you find out about her? Where did you get the inspiration to write? Was it through that? Was it through hearing about her secondhand and going, hey, I want to know more about her and write her story? Um, so actually her husband, Joe, who uh, is a former second ranger battalion ranger turned uh, fifth group guy, turned um, same special missions unit mm-hmm. that Shannon was a part of, turned ground branch for the CIA when he got mm-hmm. out. Um, he, uh, when she died, it was you know, two weeks after she died, I remember seeing the headline of people killed in Syria. Um, but uh, he reached out through his mutual contacts at the agency to Evan Hafer um, mm, of, gotcha. hey, I'm trying to get a hold of Marty. Shannon was a fan of his work. I'd want, you know, wow. and so he wanted me to write a story about her. He also was reaching out to um, other media outlets because he wanted his wife's story to be told. So like the New York Times did a story, the Washington Post did a story, but he specifically wanted to reach out to me because he knew that I would be able to write the side of the story as far as like being a former soft guy myself, that a lot of those other outlets just didn't have the um, context to, to tell. And so I did. And, and that kind of led to, you know, um, once the article was out, him and um, her former teammates, as well as her family, all felt that mine was the best representation of her. And so he'd certainly been solicited about, because she lived such an incredible story, she, he'd been getting solicited about, you know, writing a book and doing a movie, all sure. this other stuff. And sure. um, so he had his pick of the litter, but he, he you know, asked me if I'd be down. And um, and I think I propositioned him even before that, like, hey, man, I know you're probably getting hit with pitches in every direction, but if you're thinking about doing a book, like, please consider me. But he ended up, um, you know, coming back around and, and asking me to do that. And so, yeah, we've been working on that for about the past, um, you know, year going on year and a half right now. And I think we're looking at a April 2022 um, published date. Um, cool. Well, if you're the, right in the, thick if of the gods stuff, at right. DOD pre-publication review decide yeah. to bless us, uh, as well as about 13 other um, three-letter agencies that she touched on that have to review this. I'm not looking forward to the pre-publication review on this. It's going to be yeah. – well, we'll check back with you in uh, three years and see yeah. how, it's, how it's looking. Yeah, yeah. No, that's rough. I, I I can't imagine. Yeah, pins and needles waiting for that to get through all those clearinghouses. Um, that's awesome stuff. I, I didn't. Charlie had told me a little bit about it, but um, that that backstory is incredible. That's a really cool book. I look forward to it when that comes out. Charlie, uh, second mission. Let's talk about it. What, what's going on? Any any new stuff that we want to talk about? Yeah, we keep talking about Aaron Kirk's book, The Hill. Uh, it's coming out in June. L- really looking forward to that. First book published by a second mission. Closely going to be followed by Matt Saker's Armor of God. We got that one ready to go. We're going to push that one out uh, oh, cool. at an appropriate time. But also, I, I want to make another plug for Marty's book. And uh, I don't know if you guys can see my bookshelf here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move this over a little bit. So on my bookshelf, here's Marty's first book right here, Violence of Action. And it's in between my copy of Journal Crystals, My Share of the Task, and Sean Naylor's Relentless Strike, because that's the quality of writing that, that Marty puts out. So as soon as this thing comes out, I think everyone should should buy the, this book, uh, both because it's going to be good because Marty wrote it, and Shannon's story is just so compelling. So a lot of very exciting books coming out between Second Mission and what Marty and his guys are doing. And I think that's that's it for me, Chris. Writing, man, I'll tell you, everybody's writing and, and, and good writing that's coming out. This is exciting stuff, guys. Um, I look forward to it. I um, I made a plug last week. I'm just going to make it again this week because I feel like probably our listeners always have some domestic political discontent or concern or something that they kind of have in their, in their thought bubbles. So I just want to keep inserting this in there when I have the opportunity. Um, if you are against racism... But you also have significant, let's call them concerns, about critical race theory and the racism being taught in the name of anti-racism. I'd like to recommend FAIR. FAIR is the foundation against intolerance and racism. Uh, I talked about it a little bit last week. It has an amazing lineup of people I personally respect on the board of advisors, uh, Barry Weiss, Coleman Hughes, John McWhorter, Glenn Lowry, Camille Foster, Ion Hersia Lee. That's just a taste. There's like 30 people um, who contribute uh, their their time and effort to FAIR. Um, I'm a, these are all people that I uh, greatly admire and that I think have the best of intentions and the best of, um, of actions that they've taken to actively confront racism, but not create enemies where there aren't enemies and not in, and not use race as a grift. Um, and 
are happy to address race as a as being a social construct and that understand that racism creates race and creates the necessity for race and getting us into a post-racial period. So I'm a big fan of them. I push it out there because, as I said last week, briefly and probably not that articulately, when you have books like How to Be an Anti-Racist ending up on a lot of military reading lists, I think that's a sign of ignorance of our military that they don't know what other options are out there. And like any people of goodwill, you want to stand against racism, but you don't necessarily know who the best voices are to capture that. I would humbly submit many of the voices at FAIR uh, should be on your reading list. So I advocate for them um, because I think that's important at this time. Gents, this was awesome. Again, we could have done three more hours. Marty, I hope you come back and see us in the dangerously near future. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Charlie, it's always good to see you. Thanks for the kind words about the book. Uh, Charlie's <laughs> name is also on that book. That's part of the big reason that it is a good book uh, is because of Charlie's contributions there. So yeah, but uh, yeah, this is fun. And anytime, seriously. Great. I'll, I'll take you up on that because this was a blast and uh, so many avenues we could have gone down. I look forward to going down again. Charlie, thank you as always. Thanks, Marty and Chris. See you guys again soon. All right. So if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. If you're on iTunes, a five-star review would be awesome. And when I say five-star review, you can write whatever you want. You can tear us apart, constructive criticism. He has a right to criticize, who has a heart to help, all that stuff. Throw your comments in there. If you don't mind just attaching a five-star review to it, that'd be great because the metrics do matter, but feel free to say whatever you want. The show notes, which on this one will be prolific, uh, will be at theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. Again, that's theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. We will have links to as many things as I can possibly track down uh, between now and Monday night. Uh, so I'm giving myself about yeah, 36 hours to find this stuff, um, which hopefully will be enough time, but it'll be great. So you'll have the Coffee or Die website on there. You'll have Second Mission. You'll have Havoc Journal. You'll have, and then of course, all the articles that we talked about. So you can reference anything and please do that because I know we throw out acronyms and stories and names uh, frequently on here and we don't always have time. Marty did a great job of slowing down and actually you know, spelling out acronyms for us, but um, we'll try to put everything in there in the show notes so you can refer to that. We'll also have alibis for anything I misstated, any brain farts I had, any double entendres that I threw out there, which I have a great habit of doing. So I'm sure I'll wake up at two in the morning and remember something that I uh, said that I wish I hadn't. So I'll put my alibis in there. Marty and Charlie will as well if they have anything, but usually it's just me that makes those kind of mistakes. Marty, Charlie, thank you guys for being here. Thank you to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to both of our guests. We'll see you again next time for the Weekly Havoc. It's not coming through on my headphones there, so I'll just, as long as, this, as, long as you guys aren't getting an echo back, if this is working okay for you. It's, 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 it sounds, sounds fine, fine. just audible here. here. It's, it's been, been weird with us when we don't have mics, though, though, that somehow an echo seems to pick up, up on the recording. recording. Sometimes, sometimes, but then sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. It doesn't. I haven't yeah, totally figured out the wise and where for that, but... I mean, the level looks fine. I'm not hearing a lot of echo. So I'm tempted to risk it. It's like a podcasting thing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, we, I did it. It's, Good. I, I got you in my headphones. You guys are getting me through the microphone. Holy crap. All right. We've, we, we've crested the ridge. It, man, we're ready to talk now. I, I, I wish I could take any credit for this. I'm pretty much just a bystander just going, yeah, sounds good. Awesome. <laughs>